Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. So I love talking about skylight frames because I'm obsessed with this gift. You've got to get it for people. It's so awesome. I have it in my kitchen. It's essentially a frame that has pictures of your family from all over the world and you can put anything on there. So my family has it. My grandfather could just like all of a sudden be looking at it and a new picture pops up because a great grandchild has made sure that they've added new photos for keeping up. Skylight is the best digital frame for grandparents and great grandparents and aunts and uncles. This is just like the gift you got to get. It's intuitive, it's easy to use, and it just feels so good. So I also love Skylight, just the brand. They also are in my kitchen organizing my days. It's getting to be that holiday season, and it's such a good gift to give to loved ones who are far away when you know that you want to feel close. Let's take advantage of the good parts of technology. So as a limited time offer for our listeners, get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash humans to get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame. Just go to skylightframe.com slash humans. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash humans. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today's episode is on conscious parenting with really the founder of the movement, Dr. Shafali. We're focused on this idea of conscious parenting in concrete terms and really getting into the discussion of connection and not confusing connection with our kids with enmeshment. Those are two very distinct ways of being in relationships. One is so beneficial for our kids. The other is not beneficial for ourselves or for our kids, and it can get kind of murky. So I was really excited to have this conversation. Dr. Chivali is a clinical psychologist who has really made a movement out of conscious parenting, integrating Western psychology and Eastern philosophy. She's written a number of New York Times bestselling books, including The Conscious Parent, and The Awakened Family, and our newest book, The Parenting Map, Step-by-Step Solutions to Consciously Create the Ultimate Parent-Child Relationship. If you enjoy this episode, please take a moment and write a little review what your favorite episode is, what your favorite part is on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And don't forget, you can get my exclusive premium content when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and sign up for my Substack, dreliza.substack.com for newsletters and live virtual Q&As and other opportunities for us to connect. For anybody who's not familiar, can you define conscious parenting for us? Yeah, you know, there's no easy elevator pitch, but if I was to come up with one, it is a revolutionary new model of parenting that turns the traditional parenting paradigm on its head because the focus of conscious parenting is the conscious evolution of the parent. So in this approach, the parent really understands that this is all about them and raising themselves. And through that evolution, the raising of the child becomes such a natural, organic, authentic dynamic. And what have you found has been the biggest barrier for parents to tap into raising themselves? The barriers, I think there's several. (laughs) The main one is their own false self, the parental ego. Their own ego has been in place for so many years as a false self, as a protection, because their authentic self was not honored in childhood, that this then becomes the primary barrier for them to connect to their children's authentic self. So the parental ego is number one. And number two is the lies that we all have been told about who a parent is, that a parent is supposed to be in total control, that the parent is supposed to raise happy and successful children, that a parent is supposed to focus on this child before them. In all these ways, the parent has been misguided, and these then become barriers for their connection with their child. First, I want to talk to you about this thing of noticing that relationship is so important, our connection and our relationship with our children. And you have this map to connection. But can you talk about why that connection is so vital and how we can start thinking about deep and meaningful connections in general? Yeah. So you know better than me as a developmental psychologist that for a child to develop, they need to see themselves through the eyes of the other at first. So they become a sense of self. They embody the sense of self based on what they see mirrored to them from their mother's gaze to be traditional, but it could be the father as well, could be the grandma. How they perceive themselves is how they perceive they are being perceived. And it's this mirroring effect that creates this sense of inner well-being. So that can only be created and curated through the relationship the child has with their earliest caregiver. And if that relationship is blinded by the parent's own fears, by the parent's own projections, by the parent's own fantasies of who the child should be but isn't, then that child is forever looking in the eyes of the parent and going, hey, do you see me? Where am I? Who am I? So that's where that disconnection begins to happen because they're trying to be themselves and see themselves be mirrored as valid, as significant. But they're being given a different message back. Oh, you're not good enough. Oh, you need to be more of a comedian or you need to be more compliant or you need to be more aggressive or extroverted. And then the child cannot find their authentic mirroring and then they're lost. 
But because children are survivors and so want that connection, they will barter, I call it a barter and exchange program in my new book, The Parenting Map, that the child goes through. The child literally decides subconsciously to give up their authentic self in barter of connection. But that's not real connection because it's based on the child's false self. And that false self really then gets into our foundational blueprint all through life. And all our relationships begin with these missteps, right? That's why so many of us are addicted. We are in traumatic, traumatizing relationships. We can't find our sense of purpose or presence. It all starts from that initial connection. So one of the things that seems like it gets murky is when you think about when your child is 16 years old, it's easier to tap into, wait a second, I'm trying to make you fit into something that is about my idea of who you are or hope or wish instead of who you are. But when you think about parents of babies, it still happens. Like we still project in that way, but it's a little bit harder to figure out how we're doing that. Are there some ways that we can talk to ourselves to just tap into whether or not in a moment we are present and connected or if we're kind of encumbered with ideas about how we should be and how they should be. I want to go all the way up into our adult selves and adolescence, but it's so interesting to think about even in these new moments of new relationships with an infant, how this can still happen. Oh, it can so happen. And the reason why it's trickier with an infant or a toddler is because they're not pushing back against us yet. But the minute they begin pushing back, we call the toddlers terrible twos. Mm-hmm. We immediately give it a judgment because we don't like the fact that they're quote unquote terrible. And why are they terrible? Because they start saying no and they start saying why. And we don't like that, right? We don't like uh, authority question. So the way that it happens is because this infant is a blank, quote unquote, blank slate for the first few you know, months at least. And so all our fantasies get a chance to kind of be in percolation. But the way I teach in this book, The Parenting Map, how to avoid that, and I use the acronym WARM, W-A-R-M, to allow for attunement. So the way that we need to not project ourselves is that we need to replace our projection with attunement to the child. And to remember how to attune, I use this acronym. And it's W-A-R-M, to witness, Mm. allow, respect, and mirror. Each of these things are about the other and not about the self. So to witness means to non-verbally pay attention to the cues and just to observe, to be a witness. To allow means to literally give space for the expression of so the other person feels safe. To respect means to truly hold in honor whatever is showing up from the child's side. And mirror means to mirror back to them what you see in them. Hmm. All of these are the direct opposite of projection. And in projection, we literally don't realize, but we express ourselves. We give our opinion. We give our judgment. We act from our place of bias and prejudice. It's all about us. It's directly opposite to attunement to the child. So we have to learn these things. You know, if we're not consciously aware, we will be in projection happy zone 24-7. I love to project. I think I'm right, right? (laughs) So I think, why would I not want to project? 
It's only when we become aware of how deadly and toxic those projections are, not in and of itself, but off of the other. We have no right to project our projections on anyone except ourselves. If we do it to anyone else, it can get toxic. And it does. And our children don't have the faculties to yell back. That's why by teenagehood, we stand checked. Not because we want to stand checked, because (laughs) we are checked, you know? Yeah. So if someone's feeling like, I don't even know, it's so unfamiliar to me. I didn't experience this in the way that I would want to experience this relationship or it's new language for them. What are some ways I think warm is a really helpful acronym. What are some other ways that you can envision being able to shift gears? And also, since you mentioned the terrible twos, I say in quotes, as kids have these emerging toddlerhood behaviors or feelings, and there are all sorts of unfamiliar experiences parents are going through, and they might revert to clinging to projection. How do they come out of that and also feel like they're setting appropriate boundaries and giving guardrails and limits to just make sure that their children are safe without undermining who they are? Right. So there are two different topics. One is projection, and I'll show you how that works. So if the kid breaks your favorite vase, Mm -hmm. projection would be you are such a loser. I cannot believe you disrespected me. I'm going to ground you for the next five weeks. Mm -hmm. Why is that projection? Because you've taken it personally, you've overreacted, you felt it was disrespectful, and you've raged at your child based on your pattern of raging. And now you've given some arbitrary, irrational consequence. You've made it all about you. The other one is about how do you teach healthy boundaries? How do you teach how to take care of objects. Well, when your kid breaks a vase and you're trying to be conscious, you don't make it about you. You don't take it personally and you don't take it as a sign of disrespect and you don't shame them. So you say, oh, wow, that was a $1,000 vase that I was really stupid to leave around a toddler. So you take accountability and then you go, oh, wow, will you help me clean it up? And if the kid goes, no, you go, okay, no, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to clean it up. Before we go to the park, we're going to have to clean it up right away. And you and the kid clean it up and you hold that boundary. But that boundary has nothing to do with your ego. It has all to do with what needs to naturally occur in that moment. But we cannot do that authentic connection or a natural consequence if we're caught in ego. Ego makes us scream, yell, rage, take it as personal, take it as disrespect, and we shame our children. None of that has anything to do with teaching or educating our child or creating boundaries. Sponsored by Nordic Naturals, the number one selling fish oil brand in the U.S., Nordic Natural Supplements for Moms support female health throughout life, including at every stage of pregnancy and after. Nordic Naturals fish oils provide a reliable source of building block omega-3s for babies, prenatal and postnatal brain and nervous system development. Used them all myself and with my kids. Nordic Naturals Omega-3 products deliver foundational support for women, particularly women who are our age and wanting to promote healthy brain, heart, and immune systems at the cellular level. And Nordic Natural supplements for women and for children and prenatally are non-GMO verified 
third-party tested for quality and contain no artificial colors or flavors, which is why I've always used them. I am required to say that these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and that the product is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure, or prevent any disease. But I will tell you, I give it to my own children and I give it to myself and I have for 18 years. So this ad came to me, but I would have gone to them. Shop today at Nordic.com and use the promo code RGH for 20% off your first order. That's like a very rare and awesome discount. So take advantage. RGH is the code for 20% off your first order at Nordic.com. So in this ad, we're talking about stuff I don't love to talk about. No parent does. It's trust and will. And the thing is that when wonderful things happen in life, like having children, we have to also talk about how we're going to protect them in the event of terrible things happening, which won't happen, but let's just say they do. It gives you peace of mind to know that you took care of it. And since traditional estate planning can cost thousands of dollars and is like actually very complicated and one size fits all templates might not capture all the important details of the life that you've built with trust and will, you can protect your legacy from the comfort of your home starting at just $159. And it gives you peace of mind. They've simplified the process of creating and managing your will or trust online from finding out what's right for your family to finalizing documents with a notary, like all of those things that are such a pain in the butt. And I know this is not the topic that is fun to think about or fun to talk about, but it really does keep peace of mind. So gain peace of mind today with Trust and Will. Get 10% off plus free shipping of your estate plan documents by visiting trustandwill.com slash humans. That's 10% off and free shipping at trustandwill.com slash humans. I think it's interesting how many times parents feel compelled and especially when they're being watched, people are like, are you going to deal with this? Are you going to put your foot down? And I don't know if it's panic, like I'm not doing anything unless I lose my temper or unless I ground a child for five weeks or whatever. But there does seem to be this sense. And I feel so much compassion for parents. I mean, I am one as well. I feel compassion for me in these moments of feeling like you have to do something active that ends up being, as you said, this projection and it has nothing to do with your child or helping them learn. But that's exactly why I said in the beginning, when you asked me, what are the main barriers? And I said there are two. One is the parental ego and the other is the lies that we've been told about how we should be as parents. So right there, one is the ego, you take it personally. Second is the lie that, hey, We've been told we got to be in control. We shouldn't let a child get away with this. We should clamp down on the child and show them who's the boss and don't let our child get away with anything and go react right now. These are lies we've been told. You know, many times my child has been utterly out of her mind and I've totally said nothing because that wasn't the right time to say it. And I did not need to activate my ego because I knew that she is in her ego. So two egos are two really stupid people. So I'm not going to do that. 
culture in my mind has told me, don't let her get away with that. What are you going to do to clean that up? And how dare she talk like that? Mm -hmm. These are cultural egoic messages that have really taken root in the parent's psyche and messed us up. Okay. I'm trying to think about all of the and then what questions, because I know that this is such a nuanced way of thinking about them. And it's so helpful because like you said, the parents' ego, our own ego, and then the lies that we've all learned are these barriers. And then we question ourselves in the moment because we have to get back to our own centered self to be able to even remember in the heat of the moment what our purpose is. Is our purpose just to feel respected? Is our purpose to show these children who's boss? Or is it truly to be these parents guiding and keeping safe and connected to these growing individuals? But when you're set off, it's really hard to remember what your purpose is. So what can you help us with to get us in that moment when we might go on autopilot into a reaction we then regret? So in this book, The Parenting Map, I talk about the five predominant egoic cycles we can get into, and we have to begin to identify those egoic patterns within us. I talk about parents checking in with themselves and asking, am I a fighter parent, a fixer parent, a feigner parent, a freezer parent, or a fleer parent? So we get into these patterns of reactivity based on our own anxiety level. I'm a fixer parent. I'm less a fighter. I'm more a fixer. I can become a fighter, but after I'm first trying to fix. Ah. That's my instinct. Other parents immediately go into fighter mode. Other parents go into, you know, let's keep the peace for the neighbors and let's all look really beautiful when doing it. And let's take a picture and pretend we're a happy family. And then there are other parents who freeze, other parents who abandon ship altogether. So in this book, I clearly identify the different egoic patterns. You have to know your pattern. And how do you know your pattern? By A, reading a book like this and by tapping into yourself in the moment and realizing, wow, I'm anxious right now. Because when we're anxious, that's when the egoic pattern comes out. So anger is the underpinning of the fighter parent. Anxiety is the underpinning of the fixer parent. Attention-seeking is the one of the feigner parent. So in all these ways, I show how each egoic pattern has its own underlying style in the body, and we need to really understand it. So avoidance is the freezer, and abandonment is the fleer. And each one of these are our inner states of emotion that then spark the egoic reaction on the outside. So becoming aware of what's going on inside What do I do when I first hear something that's triggering? Ah, I get angry. And what do I do next? Ah, my goodness, I explode. Oh, okay. Mm. Now let's try to break this pattern. And then part of coaching oneself and reparenting oneself is to understand where these patterns came from and how toxic they were in your childhood. And once you have compassion for how you were parented, it's quite likely that you'll have compassion for how your kid is being parented. First, we have to observe what is coming out of our mouth, our behaviors. Then we have to go deeper inside to heal what is the root cause. So the fighter on the outside 
is just showing up as an exploder or yeller. But inside, they're really, really resentful or angry. So we have to explore what that is about. Where's all this anger coming from? You know, where's the entitlement coming from? And a conscious parent is really one who understands their own issues and heals their own emotional baggage so that they do not put it on their children. So you can come into a conversation with your child, now thinking about an older child, if you're coming into a conversation with them and they had a really difficult experience at school with a peer or something happened, and you can be present for their experience versus getting into whatever it brings up in your memory of what happened at that age for you. Right, right. Say your kid comes home and says, oh my goodness, I got into a big fight with three of my best friends and the teacher got involved. The fighter parent will have an explosive reaction. How the hell could you do that? What were you thinking? Are you crazy? What's wrong with you? The fixer parent will be, oh my goodness, let me call the teacher and let me see if she'll forgive you and maybe I'll do a mediation. I remember this so clearly when my daughter was 15, 16 in her little girl group, they had an explosion, a fight. And I literally said to her, you know, you know, mom would love to have all of you over and I'll mediate and let me please fix this. I literally said to her because I used to joke. She's and she knows me very, very well how I like to interfere and rescue everybody. And she's like, Mom, stay out of it. This is none of your business. And I was like, please, please, please. I I, I won't charge you guys. I want to fix you all. And she's like, Mom, I got it. I can handle it. But I could make fun of myself by then, my compulsive fixing. But this is the fixer or the feigner will be only concerned about, oh, my goodness, what will your best friend's parents say? Or we can't go to the party next week now because you guys fought. Or what does the principal think about me as a parent? Right. The feigner is all about me, me, me. And the freezer could just not be available. And the fleer could literally not even show up. Right. This emotionally abandoned the ship. So in all these cases, we're not helping the kid. In each of these cases, the way to help the child would simply be, oh, I hear you. I hear it was difficult. I'm here to offer support. What would you like me to do? Would you like me to listen? Would you like me to give advice? And then hold the container for the child to express themselves and really pass the baton of power back to the child without snatching it away and making it about us. So difficult to do in the moment, though. It is so difficult to do in the moment. But then we're also fixated on resilience, but we don't actually give the confidence to our kids that we believe that they could survive in one of those moments because we need to intervene because we're wise and we're competent. And then we wonder why we don't have this sense that there's resilience going on. Resilience, people think, is simply a skill that will show up. It's actually, before it becomes a skill, it's an attitude, an attitude that I'm not helpless. I can cope. I will not fall apart. So these three things are the three things we take away from our children, right? I can cope. I will not fall apart. I can handle this. I've got skills. We literally steal these opportunities for the child to tap into these qualities as an attitudinal belief system each and every time they come to us. I tell parents all the time, when they come to you, this is your opportunity to mirror back to them their power. And one of my clients, you know, middle-aged woman, she said to me, oh, are you trying to tell me that I should just show up as an idiot? Should I just be an idiot, mommy? I said, yes. (laughs) Always act like an idiot. Like, oh, I don't know. What would you do? I don't know what to do. 
and just give it space because in that space, the child may come up with their own resourceful answer. Jumping in and giving the answer is never going to help the child. And parents will often say to me, well, you know, I never give opinions till they ask. I go, just because they ask, they don't know better that they have the answer. So you need to tell them, no, 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 I can give you my answer, but you know your answer. So don't fall into the trap. You see, our ego is always wanting our answer to be the one taken yeah. so that we feel good about ourselves. We're so smart, though. <laughs> yeah. You know how stressful it is when you have a baby and you're trying to figure out whether or not they have a fever. Fever in newborns is, of course, more concerning than it is for older kids. And so since the fever threshold is lower, Braun developed an age precision technology to take the guesswork out. The Braun Thermoscan 7 Plus Ear Thermometer provides age-based fever guides with a green, yellow, or red reading that really helps parents so they don't have to worry about calling the pediatrician to understand the severity of the fever and they don't have to look up information. I feel like this would have been very helpful for me. And there's an app that it connects to that is great for the middle of the night fever episodes when you just cannot remember the last time you gave medicine to your child or you have another child who's sick and it's overwhelming, keeping it all together in one place so that you can just have a little bit more ease. My theme for ads. Visit Amazon and search for Braun Smart Thermometer and use the code 10HUMANS for $10 off your purchase. That's Braun, B-R-A-U-N, and the code 10HUMANS is the number 10HUMANS. Visit Amazon and search for Braun Smart Thermometer and use the code 10HUMANS for $10 off your purchase. Okay, so here's some fun. It's, you know, a little off brand for me, but make your weeknights easy. Make weeknight recipes maybe once a week. You just choose Pillsbury and do one of their weeknight recipes that are as easy as fill, roll, and bake. Even I can do that. You can please your picky eaters. You can move on with your night. You can make your kids stop saying that you are constantly just like not a lot of fun. Or do your kids not say that? Mine do. Mine say, I do not choose just easy, fun stuff. And you know what? It's fun to do the easy, fun stuff sometimes. You can find Pillsbury in the dairy aisle. Dinner prep and completion of dinner is 30 minutes or less. Prep is really like, I mean, it's embarrassing how little the time is. It's like a five-minute prep. And it's so fun. So just like enjoy every once in a while, make your life easier. Find more weeknight dinner recipes at pillsbury.com. Throw in some ingredients, fill it up, roll it, bake it, boom. You've made your kids a meal they can't believe that you actually did. You're fun. And then you can give them kale the next day. It's a little like parenting. You don't need it to be so precious all the time. Find more weeknight dinner recipes at pillsbury.com. Make your life easier. Actually, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it's the complexity of getting anybody to make a decision now. How many people do you see if their phone rings? They could be in the middle of a serious meeting or dinner with a friend, but now it's like, oh, well, my kid has a question. 
and it's not an emergency, but we feel so much like they can't function without our intervention, even on the most minor things of what to order because you weren't home. So I think it's worth saying something about even when they're asking our opinions, how can we turn that around and help them feel confident that they have some thinking they can do? But I can tell you, if you as a parent really take your time to give an answer or really show them that you're not as smart as they are, they will pick up on that. And they will find their own answers. Like my daughter kind of knows she's smarter than me. And I tell her, for your life, you're smarter than me. And for my life, I'm smarter than you. So I know my stuff. I don't know your stuff. So for your stuff, I have to figure it out. And she often gets so impatient. She goes and figures it out herself. And that's so powerful because I keep telling her, how am I in your body? You know, and she'll ask me, what should I eat for dinner? And I laugh and I tell her, "Hmm, let me see the last time I was Maya. You know, (laughs) I, I I don't think I'm Maya. And she's like, oh okay, I'll just make up my own mind. You know, I'll just find my own thing. And that's a very restraining thing for parents sometimes. They have to show acute restraint. But if you really understand what you're doing strategically, you will do it. I show restraint because I know that my goal as a conscious parent is to make myself irrelevant. Until you embrace that goal with humility and celebration, there's nothing to be sad about, right? And you embrace it then everything becomes an opportunity to go into the backstage and to give them front and center and to stay in your own lane. But because we're so inadequate and insecure ourselves, we so look for significance through this role of parent that that need to be significant and to be seen as amazing overrides our need for our children to manage their own lives. I mean, it's really sad. Our need is so self-absorbed and so selfish, and coming from such a wounded place, and I have compassion for that, that we so want to be front and center, but it is not our place to be front and center. So what are some concrete ways that you've seen this that we can kind of tweak in real time, thinking about moments when we have these opportunities to stop being front and center? And I think the martyrdom that happens in parenting is so front and center. And yet we're feeling like we're being such a great parent when we do it. So I really love the idea of naming it in this different way of you step back and let your child be front and center. But that might mean that you don't get the gold star of being the best parent in the world on the surface to whoever's watching or the lies that have been told about what it makes the perfect parent. I'm curious about some examples that we can give where it happens that we can back up and stop being front and center. Now, there's the things that are obvious. Like when we think about a parent who's trying to be attention-seeking, that's not what you're talking about. That stuff is more obvious, but it's more the things that we don't realize we're putting ourselves front and center. Right, right, right. So when our kid cries, right, whether it's a five-year-old or a 15-year-old, we panic, we want to fix it, we want the tears to go away, and that's when we become toxic and we create codependency. Instead of, it's okay, they're just crying, we will get through it, I will be right here. If they're five, I'm going to stay a witness right here. If they're 15, I'm going to leave them. They're going to be okay, they're not going to drown in their tears. 
But that resilience that I have, because I do not feel overwhelmed by feelings, is then emitted to my child. There's nothing to be overwhelmed by. We don't have to fix this right now. So that's how we create this invasion of our own overpowering helicopter dependent quality that, hey, depend on me. I got you. It just creates this very enmeshed quality from the children's side. And it starts with our inability to manage feelings. Or if our child comes with a C grade, again, our inability to manage what that means for us. Culture has told us if your kid is not a super successful kid, maybe you're not super successful. So now we're getting angry. Mm. Again, it about us. It's always in some way about us, but it has nothing to do with us. As long as we don't realize when we're making it about us, we will keep messing it up and invading our children's innate capacity to develop that self-governance, that resilience, that self-ownership. We are not their bosses. We are not to own them. And if you can look at them, like when my daughter was young, I almost saw her as having the sacred bubble around her, of which I was no part. I am not a part of her bubble. She and her own resilience and her own resources are in that bubble. And that's hard for a parent because we want to be in the bubble. We want to be right there. We want our kid to call us every time, you know? And calling us for opinions is one thing, but calling us for help is another. So I have many parents who have kids who are teenagers who are calling their parents every day for help. And the parent feels like, look, my, my daughter tells me everything. We're so close. And I go, that's not close. That's enmeshed. It's one that, thing to say, hey, mom, what do you think? It's another thing to go, oh, my God, mom, I can't handle it. Right? There's two different calls for help. That is such a great distinction. Not to confuse closeness and enmeshment is so huge because so often we feel so good about being enmeshed because we want to be their therapist, their rescuer, their go-to, but they need to be a, their own go-to. Their friends need to be their other go-to. Their self-healing circle needs to be their go-to. But if you're there all the time, they're not going to go out and find their go-to people. You know, so my daughter's in college now and many days go by and she won't ask me for anything. And that feels weird because culture has told me that I need to be quote unquote, a good involved parent. And a good involved parent is chatting with their kid many hours a day or a week. And we're not having any of it. Like she said, bye. And she went. But I know as a conscious parent, that means she's got her own resources in full action, you know, but I do see that perverse side of me as well, that wants her to need me. (laughs) Because I'm like, hello, you can't just fire me. Yeah. (laughs) You're going to see it's going to happen to you. I know. It's, it's so delicious, let me tell you, because I have my own life and I'm very happy to have it back. But there's that other acculturated part of me that wants her to need me desperately. You know, she never cries when we say goodbye. She always tells me, come on, mom, stop crying. I go, wow, man, this woman is brutal. But she's she's right. She's like, why are you make, being so dramatic? And part of my drama is really from habit, culture. You know, I'm supposed to be missing you. I'm supposed to be identifying as a mom. Give me a job. Give me something to do. But it's such bullshit, you know? Yeah. In fact, it's so interesting now that I'm seeing everybody at this age. 16 is such a funny age because you get your driver's license and you go off to have more independence. But there's still 
having a crisis or they have an emergency that they need to talk about something and distinguishing between that enmeshment and closeness and also being able to say, I know you're going to survive if I am busy right now. It's a very scary thing to say. It is against our culture if you think of yourself as a present parent. I really love thinking about this and distinguishing between those two things because I just know so many people that measure their success as a parent or their relationship with their child around enmeshment and not connection. Right. Whenever a mother or father, it's typically the mother's of a teenager, you know, after 13, 14, tells me, oh, my daughter comes to me for everything. My daughter tells me everything. That's a red flag for me, you know, because we're supposed to be individuating at that time. It's wonderful if they tell you everything, but it's also a potential red flag for enmeshment and codependency. They need to talk, but not to you. (laughs) They need to start going out into their own social circles, having their own best friends, creating their own sisterhood. And you can be the adjunct once in a while, but you cannot be the primary anymore because they're supposed to deal with these things through their peers, through their peers they learn. Children learn through their peers. And as destructive as their friends are and as clueless as they can be, what's beautiful about a peer sisterhood or brotherhood is that they kind of go through it together and they support each other. They're not supposed to be experts at their lives. Right. So when we are giving them advice, we're giving them advice in a way that makes them bypass struggles. Yes, it's more expert. Yes, it's more logical. We'll always be smarter, wiser than their kind of really scary, dumb friends, right? But that's not what's good for them. What's good for them is to actually figure out that their friends are dumb on their own and do together, together counsel each other. Right. I hear my daughter and her friends counseling each other. And I so sometimes just want to give my advice, but I see how cute they are and how they go back and forth. And each one has just one tenth of the whole piece. But that's good because that's resilience. They're building their own skills to depend on each other. And it's just a marvelous thing to watch. But if you're a parent who gets anxious when their kids fall apart, if you're a parent who gets anxious when their kid makes mistakes, when you're a parent who gets anxious, my daughter's first weekend at college, the police was called to, somebody reported the kids to the police because they were making too much noise. And I loved it. I thought that was awesome. What a great experience in her first weekend of college, right? She had to deal with the police. She's like, mom, the police were here. And I was like, fantastic. Because I could not have taught you that. I could never have simulated that. So <laughs> real life is where the real lessons come. But when we get involved, we bypass those real life lessons and we actually buffer them from those bruises that they need to go through. I noticed that there is some confusion about toxic stress versus tolerable and positive stress that I think might make parents feel like they can't let things be because they're putting everything in the category of the very rare idea of something that is actually toxic, where your buffering and support is critical to their getting out of it. But that's like war. Right. So the way to just say it clearly is when they are in physical danger, like cutting themselves, they have a substance abuse problem, somebody's beating them up, 
then yeah. you can please jump in, right? Then I tell parents, hello, please, please do not wait. Yeah, just go jump, rescue, fix, yeah. solve the problem, send your kid away, be as dogmatic and dictatorship as you need to be. In those moments, don't waffle. But anything else, a C grade, you know, food poisoning, a pimple, somebody didn't invite you for a birthday party, they don't know what to eat. Oh my goodness, they didn't eat anything all day. They didn't get good sleep. All of this is absolute nonsense that they must deal with on their own. They have to. So you cannot panic at all these things. So if you just know, okay, when you are in physical danger, I will rise up. All the rest, I'm not sweating it. Even when the police came to my daughter, I didn't sweat it. I was like, that's just the police. Deal with the police. And because then she knows that obviously if she were actually under threat, you would swoop in, which makes her have the confidence to know, I guess, even something that's really scary to me, like a big emotional event or the police coming because it was too loud. It's obviously manageable. It's a manageable stress. And the only way to know that you can manage a stress is to have this person, in this case, her mother, say with this calm that you have that nobody can see right now, but to be able to do that. Now, what happens? Let's talk a little bit about the repair. So let's say somebody's listening to this and they think, oh my God, I've been confusing connection and enmeshment. How do I make repair? And another thought is a parent who thinks I haven't been connecting or enmeshed. I've just been the boss and I've been losing my temper. How do I make repairs? So sometimes when people say, well, that ship sailed, what can you say to that, to those different scenarios when parents just feel like, well, great, I did it all wrong. So that's another lie they're telling themselves because no one does everything all right or all wrong. We all have tendencies and we all make terrible mistakes. And this is not about perfection. This is about becoming conscious right here, right now. So consciousness starts now. We start with where we are now, whether your kid is 30 or three, and we begin to create a change in the moment. And what is the change we're making? We're basically saying we're going to take care of our own feelings and manage ourselves so that it doesn't spill out into my ability to see my kid. Who is my kid? Let me get to know who my kid is. What does my kid think about their problem? And just that invitation to allow yourself to see, connect, attune to who your kid is versus who you think they should be is such an energetic shift. It's a game changer. So we need to. Just forgive ourselves for all that we did not know and have compassion. The past brought us to this moment. And this is a beautiful revelation to have. Oh my goodness, I've been doing it wrong. That is an invitation to begin in the now. It's not an invitation to go and drink and to become depressed. It's an invitation to say, okay, now I know what I know. And I'm going to start now. I mean, when I look back at my parenting, I'm horrified at some things I've said and just recently, my daughter was with some friends of mine and she reminded them, she was like, oh, you think my mother's like this? I'll tell you how my mother is. I was like, Maya, okay, okay, relax. Like, why do you remember all this and don't remember math or geography? But she, they remember everything bad you've done. This is nothing to be embarrassed about because they're not perfect and neither are you. So this is about real self-compassion and starting again in the here and now. 
And in the same way that you're letting them know that you're not afraid of feelings. Yeah. So you're also not afraid of being your imperfect self. And both of those things are such a gift for them so that they grow up not expecting to be perfect, not expecting to always feel fixed. But I do think that there is such peace in knowing that it will not be peaceful. And there's such calm for me in knowing that it's going to be what it is. And there are going to be moments that are hideous and moments that are glorious and moments that we feel like, oh, I would like to do that all over again, but we get another chance. People think conscious parenting is this pristine model of perfection. Yeah. And it really is absolutely the opposite of that. What it is, is bringing awareness to the unconscious. So it's actually anything but this pristine, you know, smooth ride. It's constantly saying, wow, what does that say about my pain? What does that say about how I need to grow? It's a constant push to evolve. So this is hard work. And there's nothing about looking for the easy way. Once you start becoming mindful, you understand that there is no such thing as good or bad, perfect or imperfect. You don't even use labels like that. It's just all in process in the here and now. And every moment is an invitation to wake up. There are two other kind of topics that I feel like I I could just see you having a great response to. The first is the concern. There's this deep concern that this self-absorption of us, the parents, now pouring it all into our children, getting confused with being present and available and connected with being enmeshed and helicoptered and curated. Is that a risk for the coddling of our kids? So you hear a lot of parents concerned about the extremes and parenting approaches, and none of these are in the science of it. It's just sort of mainstream culture that talks about gentle parenting or however you want to define it. And then there are parents who are on the other side of that feeling like they can't give any boundaries, but then there are parents feeling like, well, now we have a self-absorbed generation. None of that has anything to do with this conscious parenting. But how do we lift that? I guess this kind of goes back to the enmeshment and centering ourselves, actually, as I'm saying it. The centering of ourselves by centering our kids may, in fact, be creating a new, you know, generation of navel gazers. And I'm just curious where you stand on that. Yeah. So many people who hear conscious parenting at first take it to mean a laissez-faire. There's no parent in the house. Everyone can booze and sleep all day, right? That's so not what this approach is about. It's about taking out your ego. But that doesn't mean that if your kid drops water on your head, you don't tell them, hey, can you help me clean this up? Mm-hmm. You are authentic and you're present. You're real. If they hit you on your face, this doesn't mean you saying that was so lovely. Do it again. No, you hold their wrist and you go, please, that hurt me. What is going on? Help me understand. Why did you just do that? You're a human. You're present, but you're not coming out of a wounded place. You know, so when the kid hits you, you're not going to hit them back. You're not going to scream, you know, and tell them that they're a loser and that 
you're going to send them to an orphanage and that you're going to abandon them because you're so disrespected, because you're so wounded. None of that. You're just going to go, a kid had an impulsive disorder and in that moment and acted out and I'm going to stop them. But you are going to stop them. You're not an automaton. You're not disconnected. You're actually very present. So you're actually going to go, hey, that's not okay. That hurt me. And we're going to talk about it. So it's a very present approach. It's just not an egoic reactive approach. You're present to what does my kid need from me right now? What does my kid need to develop into a better, more centered, more grounded human being right now for themselves? What does my kid need from me to help them process this? See, it's always what does my kid need from me for their development? And you're always asking that question versus how does this make me feel about me? I think there is this idea of like, okay, I'm connected, I'm supportive, so I can't draw the line, but you just did. And it was very clear. But connected and supported means you see them for all of who they are, including all their crap. If they're lying to you, you don't go, oh, I let you lie to me. You say, I guess you're lying because you don't feel safe. And that's something I have to work on. But you are lying. Mm-hmm. You're not a fool in this movement. You're not a, a rescuer. So even if we talked about how we shouldn't rescue by overgiving our opinions and our answers, in the same way, we don't overrescue if a kid is lying. If they're lying, they're lying. We don't overrescue them out of the fact that they're lying. We don't yell at them because, see, we're overrescuing them. If we know they're lying, but we tell them they're not lying and act like they're not lying, we're actually rescuing them. Mm. And that mother is rescuing her kid. She's not supporting her kid. She's not connecting to the kid. She's actually endorsing a violation of somebody else's human rights. And she is actually protecting her kid from the harsh reality that he was harmful. We don't have to flip our lid. We can just go, hey, you hurt someone. That was an act of bullying. You need to go and atone. Period. It's just like, sorry. But similarly, if the kid is drinking alcohol in their room or smoking crack or marijuana and they're 12 years old and you want to connect with your kid. Connecting doesn't mean we act like it's not happening. That's Mm -hmm. you're disconnected from reality. So connection means, hey, I'm really worried. This is not okay. You are harming your brain cells. Therefore, you are in physical violation of my child's sovereign being. And I'm not going to allow that. We have a problem because you're harming my kid. And I think people are confused because they want to avoid reality. Yeah. So if your kid acted like a jerk, you have to see them for who they are. But you see, we are so afraid of damaging our children's sense of self or esteem that we actually create the fragility, right? Just because you acted like a jerk doesn't mean you're always a jerk, but boy, you were a jerk yesterday. You were right then. (laughs) And that's okay. And when your child knows that you see them for their essence, like I got you, I know you're such an amazing person, but amazing people can still be jerks. I'm a jerk. You're a jerk. We're all jerks. So So to pretend like we're all just one thing, either all bad or all good is really damaging. That means we're not seeing our children for who it is they are. Every child is amazing. Every kid is amazing at their core, but they can also be sometimes manipulative, sometimes sneaky, sometimes vile, sometimes rude. We all have all potential within us, right? Yeah. To pretend like our children are only good or bad is our defense against seeing reality in its totality. 
So that, those were great questions. I think that's important because people are so confused. I know people get so confused and I'm always like, I just want to get to like that little bit where they might misinterpret unless we just state it. Yeah, I know. They'll hear me for three hours and then they'll go, oh, I guess what you're saying is that we can never correct our children. Exactly. Like, where did you hear that? Like I just said for three hours something. Yeah, you can correct them when, you know, but not from ego, but it's very hard for people. Thanks a lot. So nice meeting you. Steve. It's so nice to meet you. Bye. Bye. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.